Welcome to the Hellraiser Podcast. Hello, and here we are back again with the Hellraiser Podcast. I'm Peter, and with me again is Phil. Hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. And today we're going to be talking about Hellraiser Deader, the seventh film in the Hellraiser series. So this film was released straight to DVD, straight to video, in 2005, although we still haven't had a UK DVD release of it yet, which is a shame. But it's been released elsewhere, and that's where we've been watching it. Again, we've used the Dutch import and the Region 1 American import. The Region 1 is especially good because you get lots of special features on it, so that's the one I would recommend. Yeah. So, let's begin. First of all, this film is directed by the same guy that did Hellraiser Hellseeker. And in fact, he also did the next film in the series, which we'll talk about a bit later on, I think. But Hellraiser Deader started life as something else. It started as a film just called Deader, which was nothing to do with Hellraiser, written by a chap called Neil Marshall Stevens, who sold his script to Dimension, and they then decided it would make a good Hellraiser sequel if it had some changes. So they gave it to a guy called Tim Day, who turned it into a Hellraiser film. Yeah, because I can't really imagine this film if it wasn't a Hellraiser film. No, well, you can... It would be really weird, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be strange. You can find the original script for Deader online. Um, A very good place to find it is the Hellbound Web website, which is uh, Cenobite.com. They've got a library of different scripts. One of them is the Hellraiser Deader. Well, not actually, just the Deader. They've got the Deader screenplay and the Hellraiser Deader screenplay, so you can look at them both and compare them. But no, it was a very odd film, just when it was just Deader, with some special effects sequences written in that there was no way they could have afforded. <laughs> so basically, the script turned up with its own mythology already in it, and then they added the Hellraiser mythology to it. And this works to greater and lesser extents in different parts of the film, which we'll talk about later on. Yeah. But let's begin at the beginning. It opens with the journalist Amy Klein, who is writing a story about drug-taking, her follow-up to her story, How to Be a Crack Whore. Yeah, well, she starts off in sort of a crack den, mm. isn't she? And yeah. you think, oh, she's a druggie, but she isn't. She's just a reporter. She's so, just there for the story. So it'd be an interesting follow-up story, wouldn't it? Because it seems like she's writing How to Be a Crack Whore again. Two. Really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How to Be a Crack whore Yeah. And she goes back to the offices of the magazine she works for, which is the London Underground magazine. Well, cheeky name cheeky there. Name. That's good, isn't it? Which is set in London, the first part of the film, which is, that's nice. Nice nod to the first first film. Yeah. And her editor, Charles, shows her a video of something strange that happened in Romania. Hmm. Very strange. A group of people gathering round, chanting things they're not real. There's a lady saying she's not real there. None of her bits are real, her eyes aren't real, everything's not real. She shoots herself in the head, and then the leader of this group, a guy called Winter, then gets on top of her, kisses her, it looks like, or does something to her mouth-to-mouth, and then she wakes up again and she's alive. Mm, with a huge hole in her head. Yeah, and it turns out these are the Deaders. So it's a strange title, but it doesn't just refer to people being deader than other people. These are the people called Deaders. Yeah. Which is a bit of a shame, because I think people who don't watch the film, who just see the title, would be like, that's yeah. a really stupid title. It is. It does they're look more, a bit silly. They're more they? dead. Yeah. Hellraiser, more dead. Yeah. But it's good in the film. Yeah, yeah, it works in the film. So Amy then sets off to Bucharest in Romania to follow up the story. 
Now, the reason she goes to Romania is because it was much cheaper for them to film over there. So instead of setting the whole film in London or in America, where the original screenplay of Dedder was set, they changed the whole thing to Romania when they found out they were going to be filming there and went over because it was much cheaper to hire people and to fly English actors over to Romania. But I think it adds a real sense of depth to the film, definitely, having it set there. Yeah, it's a kind of place that looks like anything could happen. It looks like somewhere where you'd expect Pinhead to be creeping around in the shadows, yeah. the buildings. The yeah, gothic building. buildings. Very interesting. And weirdly, it looks, to me, it looks more expensive because they're filming in a foreign location, as it were, than if it was just set filmed in America. Mm. But it was much cheaper. Yeah, it definitely adds a lot to it, actually. Yeah, it's good. So she goes off to find the girl who sent the video to the newspaper office, a girl by the name of Marla. She finds her, but she's hung herself in her bathroom. Hmm. Really creepy, this bit. Yeah, this bit's really weird. Yeah, it's it's good. She's There's a horrible smell in the apartment. She manages to convince the super of the building to let her in for five minutes. And then she discovers this dead body hanging from a wire hanging from the wall in a really weird position. And it's pretty... This is pretty freaky. Hmm. I think it's really all in the positioning of the body, the way that she's not sort of hanging from the roof mm. by a rope. Yeah. But she's almost kind of tethered to the wall. Yeah, Dead, kind of sitting up. It's it's really creepy and weird. With blank eyes. Yeah, good makeup. Yeah, very good makeup. Yeah, the makeup's really good throughout. All the practical makeup throughout the film, done by Gary Tunnicliffe, who's worked on some of the previous films, is all excellent, I think. Hmm. And you spotted him in this film, Peter. Yeah, he's in the beginning. Those of you who are interested, he's the guy, he's the pervy English guy who comes up to Amy at the very beginning in the offices of the London Underground and sort of comes on to her in a really bad way. That's Gary Tunnicliffe. Nice one, Gary. <laughs> nice try. <laughs> so around the dead body of Marla, there are two things that Amy sees and she takes. One is a package that happens to have a video in it and the other is a puzzle box. No way. Yeah, Marla's dead hand is clutching this puzzle box. And just as she's got these things and is leaving, all of a sudden Marla comes back to life and grabs her. Shockingly. Shockingly. And this is actually really well done, I think, because you know that she's going to come back to life as a watcher of films, yeah. a viewer of films. Yeah. You know she's going to move, but they do quite a lot of sort of false starts, the way the camera is placed, the mm -hmm. way that she moves her hand, stuff like that. You keep thinking it's going to be the moment where she comes back to life. And they almost got me at the point where I thought, <laughs> oh, maybe she's not going to move. And she did. Yeah. Which is quite which rare these days. It is. It's a nice actual scare moment, which is great. The build-up of tension and then the payoff at the end. No, it's good. Mm. Pretty good scene. Then she goes home and watches the video, which is a video of Marla asking her to help her, help them, the deaders, and telling her not to open the box. So, of course, first thing she does is she picks up the box. She thinks, or she says, open it? Yeah. How on earth could I open this thing? Well, oh. as, as, as with the other films, basically you just have to look at it and yeah. it'll open. <laughs> she does a, a bit of manipulation in this one. She, she does. does the round the round the thumb thing. The round the round the thumb she thing. She presses a button. She has a bit of a play with it. And then it opens. And then chains spring out of it and grab her head. Mm. Which is really good. That bit's great. It is good. It looks painful. It's a nice mix here of a little bit of CG, 
mm-hmm. uh, but good practical chains and as well. Just on the just when the CG is about to become a bit dodgy, yeah. the practical chains come in and it looks really good. Yeah, it's quite a vicious moment this because the chains actually pull her head into the box. Yeah, so she's headbutting the box, which I really liked. That's good. Yeah, that's really good. It's really good. And then Pinhead turns up, and he doesn't say very much at this point. He's got a little cameo at this moment, like he does in all these films. And then he goes away again, but we'll see him later on in this film. Hmm. He's just there to tell her she's in danger. Mm-hmm. I would believe I was in danger just by looking at him. Yeah, really. and, and the fact I chained in my head. Yeah. That gives it away a bit. <laughs> so then she decides to seek out the deaders. So the first thing she does is she's been told where to go on this video from Marla to this train, this weird train, which is the last carriage of a particular train, which is all decked out in sort of S&M... Lots of people taking drugs and having sex with each other, and it's like a club on a train, mm. which is a really good idea. It's a great idea. I like this. How well do you think it's been done on the film? Um, I think it's really good idea. I think they did the best they could with the film. Um, with the budget they had. With the budget. Um, yeah. It was really difficult to do. This film had a very low budget, we haven't mentioned that already, but it didn't have much money at all. No, but I have great respect for them for, for going for it. And it does what it's supposed to do. Mm. It looks good. It gives you the idea of what it should be. Um, and yeah, yeah, can't fault it, really. You know, yeah, it's from, good. For the, for the money that they had. And she's trying to find the character Joey, who she finds, who's played by the British actor Mark Warren. And he basically, again, he tells her not to get involved. He tells her what she's after, but then tells her not to get involved with it. Which is a bit cheeky, really. It's, a, it's quite a familiar motif of all these Hellraiser sequels, isn't it? Someone yeah. sort of goes, this is bigger than you, you shouldn't get involved, you shouldn't open the box, yeah. and you shouldn't do this. And they go, why? And then they do it anyway. Yeah, and they say, this is exactly what you have to do, but don't, don't do it. Don't do it. You get the sense in this scene that the deaders are bad. Yeah. Because this guy's on his train, he's got all these girls around him with their tops off, and everyone's doing strange things, and S&M stuff, and taking drugs, but this guy's like, don't get involved with those debtors. Mm-hmm. They're really bad. <laughs> yeah, the, the nudity is a little gratuitous in this scene. It mm. does keep cutting to a lesbian couple who he's sort of got next to him, he's watching. There's quite a few shots of them. Yeah, they get their money's worth out of the... Yeah, of the, the uh, Romanian extras they found. Oh dear. <laughs> but it might be an editing choice as well, because apparently Mark Warren didn't ever do the same thing twice in each take, so they had a real hard time editing him to sit down. So whenever there was a problem in his hand in the wrong place, hey, let's cut to the naked ladies. Cut to the naked ladies, that's yeah. good. I, I think one thing I will say, I guess my only um, criticism with this train thing is not, you know, how it looks. It's just that when they're trying to portray you know, people into crazy underground S&M type things in Hollywood mm. films. It's always a little bit silly. Like, it'll be a woman with her top off just wearing some kind of welding goggles with yeah. a little dolly. Yeah. And they're like, look at this, it's so weird, isn't it? And you're like, well, it's... Yeah, but... It's, it's a bit, bit weird. It's just a bit daft. <laughs> it is a bit daft. But, um, you know... Imagine for a moment that train had Clive Barker designed it. My God, can you imagine? <laughs> Probably would have been too much for the DVD. Yeah. Would have been good, though. Would have been bloody good. But like you said, they did the best with the budget they had, and, and the ideas are good. Mm-hmm. And yeah. That's a nice little moment as well. It's definitely interesting. I mean, at this point, you know, as watching the film, I'm, I'm enjoying it, I'm really liking it, and I feel, most importantly, reassured. 
with some of the other Hellraiser sequels, by this point, I'm a bit nervous because it doesn't. I don't think the people who made it really mm-hmm. know what they're doing. Yeah. Whereas this one, it just feels like a confident piece of filmmaking. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Much more so than than Hellseeker, I think. Really. I think so as well. Which is a bit weird because it's the same director, but maybe I mean Hellseeker was his first film, so maybe he learnt an awful lot on that one. And he's also got a different director of photography and cinematographer he's working with. He's working with a, a guy from Romania who makes a big difference, I think, from the look of the film. I mean, the film looks really good. It looks like a proper movie. Yeah. It doesn't look cheap at all. No, it looks very good. And mm. they make it work for them, you know, all the different challenges that they faced. As we know, they had a lot of different challenges, and uh, I think they, they do the best that they can all the way through. Yeah, definitely. So she then goes to try and find the deaders. And during this scene, there's a there's a very good moment where the walls close in on her. She's trying to get down this little alleyway. The walls close in, and she gets a bit stuck. Which yeah. is, that's a nice moment. It is. This that's... is the Indiana Jones moment, isn't it? That's yeah. what I think of it as. Yeah, it is. And then she lights her lighter, and all these little bugs on the wall CG, scatter. CG, CG bugs. bugs. Yeah, this is this is possibly the only dodgy CGI moment in the film. I think they're a bit. Yeah, they're well, they're not fake. necessary, are they? Really, not really. But as she's just as she's got stuck, a figure turns up behind her with a big knife, Ooh. and stabs her. Sort of slashes mm-hmm. at her. Well, is it here that that it can't? Does he stab her? Or does he sort of stabs her in the arm? Almost. I think this is supposed. To, I think this is supposed to be Marla. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So she stabs her in the arm, mm-hmm. and it's not really implied whether she stabs her in the back, but this is something that comes into play later on. And she eventually manages to find her way into the Deader's lair and she meets Winter, who she has met before briefly, which we didn't mention. But when she comes off the train, the Joey train, she sees him and he jumps in front of another train and apparently dies. When the authorities can't find any body and then she sees him again getting on another train and she can't quite get to him. And that's also another creepy moment when he just jumps in front of a train for no reason. Yeah, he's sort of walking down the platform at her in slow motion, looking mm. all cool. And then, uh, yeah, kills himself, seemingly. So this is another very familiar thing from Hellraiser films, the, the from the sequel, should I say, that you've got people having these visions and sort of flashbacks and things. Oh, one important thing to mention here mm-hmm. is she, she's having flashbacks to her childhood, isn't yeah, she? Yeah, and her big fat dad. Mm. Who, um, rather disturbing flashbacks, where it sort of looks like he, well, he was abusing her, basically. Yeah, when uh, when she yeah, was a little much. girl, which is quite it's not, horrible. It's not explicit, but I think it is definitely implied. I mean, he pu- pushes her down onto a surface and takes his belt off, so he could be either going to whip her with his belt, but it's kind of implying that he did some worse stuff than that. It's not good, whatever it's it is. Not good. Hey, Peter, even whipping a child is bad. I know, I know, Phil. I do know that. <laughs> I know you're you're very old school. <laughs> <laughs> Don't whip your kids, listeners. Okay, so the Deaders eventually invite her in and try and get her to turn herself into one of them by stabbing herself. Yeah, she she sees another one of them become a Deader. She's stabbed. Mm-hmm. Uh, she sees the girl with the gunshot wound in the head and uh, she speaks to Winter who basically says that this is all part of his plan, that he wanted her to come to him. Yeah. He chose her and Winter's very... You know, what you'd expect from a sort of cult leader. He's very kind of starey-eyed and mysterious. It's all a bit weird because he's sort of implying that the box 
belongs to him. It's a family heirloom, he says. And we'll talk about that a lot more later on when the end of the film comes about. Mm-hmm. Um, although we haven't said a spoiler warning. <laughs> we are spoiling the film, as you can tell. And we're going to spoil the end. So uh, if you haven't watched it yet, then that's your fault. <laughs> so he tries to get her to become a deader. And then all of a sudden she wakes up in the bath. <laughs> she does wake up in the bath. Which is really strange. I mean, if you're going to... You might w- wake up all of a sudden in these Hellraiser films. It happens quite a lot. Mm. But of, not often in the bath. I mean, if you fall asleep in the bath, you're in trouble. Yeah. You could you could die. You could. Take note. But she wakes up. She seems to be fine. So she goes to bed. And then when she's in bed, she gets stabbed in the back by a big knife. Mm. And then is one of the, in my opinion, one of the best scenes in any Hellraiser film from four onwards, I think. Mm-hmm. Bold statement. Yeah, it is a bold statement. I'm going to stick by it. Wow. Which is her in the bathroom trying to get this knife out of her back. It's sticking out the front of her. The tip of the knife is sticking out the front of her chest. And the back of the handle sticking out her back. And she's trying to get it off. And there's blood everywhere. And she's slipping on the floor and putting bloody handprints all over the walls. It's a pristine white bathroom. So it works really well with the red blood. And it's just really... Horrific, and and the the way she's doing it, the acting is so good. She's so intense and into it. It's just incredible. I think. I think it's a really, really strong scene. It is really good. This scene. It's the the very tip of the knife sticking out of her chest is what gets me. Yeah. And yeah, when she has to, she basically wedges the knife handle in a cupboard to mm-hmm. pull it out, and it you really feel like oh, when this knife's yeah, coming out, it looks painful. And the way everything, the music and the sound effects of the knife and it's just really well done mm, it excellent is a good scene and then she gets it out and Pinhead turns up again yeah and says that Winter's trying to get to use her basically and Pinhead says that the deaders have discovered a way into his domain into hell but the only way they can do it is through her through Amy and then he says the only way through for her is through him which that it gets a bit muddy around this point. Yes. It, yeah, it doesn't quite make sense, this little bit, sort of. I mean, it does and it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, it's good, though. Nice to see him. Yeah. yeah. Nice to see him. Nice, nice old friend. See, nice to see you, sir. Um, but yeah, there's a bit here where he says, you have been recruited as a soldier in another man's war. Yeah. And this started my brain going, because I thought, wow, this is really good. This guy, Winter seemingly has the power to bring people back from the dead and he's taking on Pinhead. You know, there's something... Yeah. Well, that's exciting, that's exciting. It's implying that Winter's starting up his own army to battle the Cenobites, in effect. Yeah, which, that sounds great. Sounds really good. That does sound great. But that's not quite what occurs. No, it turns out later on that's not quite what is going on. But again, we'll get to that in a moment. So she manages to patch herself up using a massive towel wrapped round herself with gaffer tape and then she's she's stumbles out into the world and this is great because she her wound keeps bleeding and as Pinhead says she's not in any pain but she keeps bleeding and she's leaving bloody footprints all over the floor and she goes down to the train station to see Joey again and there's blood all over the floor where she's standing and this is all this is all great this is all really nasty and it's a horrible thing to think about bleeding and not being able to stop bleeding. Yeah, because the other deaders that she saw earlier on, they had their wounds. You know, the girl from the video, mm. 
from right at the beginning of the film, she's still bleeding from her head. You know, they're all yeah. still bleeding from their wounds, which is really cool and horrible. And yeah, it is quite terrifying as well. The podcast. You downloaded it. We came. So she goes back to see Joey. He basically says, yeah, well, I told you not to get involved and you're, it's too late now. And then all of a sudden, the whole thing changes and the carriage, the train carriage, becomes a carriage of the dead, as it were. Joey's dead and then everyone's dead and they're chained up by chains and their pieces hanging off the wall and there are hooks and chains everywhere and it becomes like a Cenobite lair on the train. And you see this Cenobite sewing someone's open neck wound and this Cenobite, she's only seen briefly, she's got got wires in her eyes and she's sort of reminiscent a bit of the wire twins from Inferno. Mm. But I believe she's referred to as the little sister. Little sister. We yeah. have no idea why. I mean, she's literally in it for a few seconds and that's it. Yeah, it is literally like two seconds, quick look, that's it. But yeah, I think I think it looks like they kind of repurposed the wire twin makeup a little bit. It, yeah, it's similar, isn't it? Mm. So all these dead people are hanging around, quite literally, and then all of a sudden, Amy wakes up in hospital, and you start to think, what's going on? Is it going to get like Hellseeker, and it's going to keep jumping around and being non-linear, we're not going to know what's going on? And, you know, has she been in hell for the whole time since she opened the box? This is what's happened before for the last two films, so you do kind of worry for a moment that Mm. she opened the box and she's been in hell since then, and Mm. it's just going to end. But luckily, it doesn't do that, which is good. Yeah. She's in hospital, and her editor, Charles, comes to visit and just they say they found her in her apartment and she's going to get better soon and she's happy and she's all smiles and all of a sudden it all goes wrong again with this weird little girl who draws her picture as pretty much Amy as Harvey Two-Face from Batman yeah yeah and then Marla turns up looking not dead or deader as she's been but she turns up looking quite nice yeah, she looks normal. And it's important to note here that Amy is wearing a white top and she's not bleeding. Yes. So yeah, this is seeming to suggest that in the day or, you know, in the light or, I don't know, they, they, they don't look dead, these deaders. But then as time wears on, they do. Well, well, that's definitely a plot point from the original deader screenplay that they didn't really go into. It's all about the there's two different versions of reality, the light side and the dark side. And they don't really go into that in this, but Marl does say something about when it's dark enough, there is no distinction between being alive and being dead. And then she starts talking about the box. She starts saying that Winter needs someone to open the box, but only someone who's willing to be a deader as well, willingly. And only a certain type of person can open the box, someone who's quite depraved and all this and that. She goes into the details. And she starts talking about the idea of all the deaders experiencing this amazing pleasure they've been promised. And now it turns round, and it's sort of it's implying that Winter is trying to open the box. He's promised the deaders they're all going to go to this amazing place full of pleasure. Mm. Which is what a lot of people think when they go to open the box in the first place. But all of a sudden it shifts from not being about an army or anything like that, like it was implied earlier on. It's just Winter is just trying to open the box for his own gain, really. And Amy's the only person that can do it because she's willing to become a deader, so they think. And also she has the depravity to open the box. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of what they're implying at this point, isn't it? I mean, again, it's not clear. It's not explicit. 
So this is the this is the point where you're kind of a little bit like, hmm, okay, this sort of this storyline, this through line doesn't make too much sense to me, I guess. Yeah, it's it's quite ambiguous, and that's not necessarily a good thing in this film because there's so much going on that you do need explained. There's stuff about the deaders, you know, what they are, what they want, Winter, who he is, what he wants, and how the Cenobites are getting involved and interacting with them, and what opening the box means in the world of the deaders, and all this sort of thing that is hinted at and not really gone into. Even at the end, it's not really gone into. No, it isn't, because Winter, as a character, can bring people back from the dead, seemingly. Yeah. yeah. But that is not explained. No, and Pinhead sort of implies that Winter has this power that he shouldn't be using, because that's, you know, that's our power to keep the dead alive, so he shouldn't be doing that, is sort of what he says at one point. So then what happens at the end is she wakes up back in the deader room and Winter wants her to kill herself and become a deader and then open the box, I guess. Yeah, but well, she's already opened the box, so she just needs to become a deader. But he doesn't know that, does he? I don't know. But basically, he, he's trying to get her to stab herself and become a deader and she refuses to. She grabs the box, opens it, and the Cenobites appear. Yeah. And again, this is just like the last film... You've got all these Cenobites. There seem to be quite a few. You keep seeing glimpses of them, but literally no more than a glimpse. You've got the you've got Chatterer in the background, who you barely see at all. You don't. He doesn't even get one close up. I don't think does he? No. You've got I think again. I'm saying I think because you can just about make them out briefly. You've got Stitch and Bound from Hellseeker, who get a brief close up each. Well, it's a it's a new new version sort of, isn't it? Oh yeah, because yeah, it's it's. Bound two apparently because it's a male version rather than the the woman the buxom lady. Mm-hmm. There's also another Cenobite credited. You don't <laughs> see at all. No, this is this is quite funny. In the credits, you might notice there is the Spike Cenobite, and you can go online and find you can find images from the Spike Cenobite, which is literally an actor dressed in the Cenobite clothes with a massive spike instead of a head. Coming out of his head facing forwards. It's ridiculous. I'm so glad they didn't use that. Yeah, it's really bad. In, in, the, in the commentary, Gary Tunnicliffe's talking about how good it is. No way. And how he wants to, he should, they should use it in a later film. <laughs> oh dear, it looks so it's silly. It's crazy. But there, there, I think, is. do you see the little sister briefly in the background? If you do, it's, it's blink and you miss her. But again, it's such a shame. All these, I mean, think back to the very first film when the Cenobites turn up and there are close-ups of all of them, there's a major close-up of Chatterer's teeth right at the end, it's just saying, hey, everyone, look at how horrible these creatures are mm. and look how cool they are. But they had personalities as well. I mean, you knew... Yeah, that's true, yeah. You knew what Chatterer was all about. You knew what Butterball was doing. Uh, but in these later films, the other Cenobites have no personality whatsoever. They really don't. They, they're, they, they're literally just props. They are. Yeah. It's like, okay, we've got the box in the film, we've got chains, you need hooks, and you need some Cenobites doing something. Yeah, and I think um, what Doug Bradley said in our interview with him is very telling. He was saying that, basically, as soon as they get Pinhead and the Cenobites on the screen, the directors want to get rid of them as quickly as possible. <laughs> yeah. And I think if they had given the other Cenobites personalities, they they get frightened, going, oh, we can't film these scenes with these monsters. No, they they should be doing things, damn it. (laughs) And they're still not, which is such a shame. I think in the first Hellraiser film, the scenes with the Cenobites were 
few and far between because that's what makes it good you know but it, that's true yeah you know but i think that in the later films it's they're not copying that formula because they want to make it you know few and far between to make it really impactful i do think it's because they don't know what to do with them yeah it's true and they get into this mindset where they're like pinhead can only stand there still in front of you and deliver some long sermon at you and the other guys can just stand behind him mm-hmm. and, and that's all they do with him and I, I don't think they know what else to do no and maybe we can have the others killing someone or doing something in the background because even thinking back to inferno at least you had those wire twins who had that nice little scene with him mm. and that was good yeah but as soon as you get to hellseeker they and they're hardly seen it's just the same in this one and it's a real shame, especially those people who are big fans of the Cenobites. And people love them. People want to see more of them. Absolutely. And at the point of the film, and, and again, going back to the first Hellraiser, the story that was happening in the first Hellraiser, minus the Cenobites, was so interesting mm. that that's why it's fine to just have them not really in it. But in these ones, the stories are uh, definitely weaker. They're a lot yeah. thinner. And so, you know, you could bolster them up with and also, some Cenobite stuff. And also, the stories are about Pinhead and the Cenobites. Absolutely. This one is especially. Yeah. And so, if if the, if story's going to be about them, surely you need to have them in it. Absolutely. And Doug Bradley's always amazing, you know. And the makeup yeah. is always good. Yeah. It's not like you could say, oh, the, the makeup looks dodgy, so we don't really want to show them and stuff. The makeup always looks good. The yeah. costumes look great. It's Gary Tunnicliffe again doing the makeup, and it's just great. I mean, why not show close-ups of it? weird yeah anyway pinhead is having a chat with winter and he sort of implies that he's a descendant of le marchand doesn't he he sort of says you come from a line of toy makers maybe you should have stuck to that yeah so maybe some people would say that that's why winter has this power to bring people back from the dead or whatever that he's from this line but i don't know that doesn't make any sense if you think about it but well not not really because he's not it's one of the firstborns because they all, you know, then had sons that went on to become, you know, down the line, down the line to the end of bloodline. Mm. So, and he doesn't have a son, or at least not that they show. Mm. So it's maybe he's like a brother of one of the children of one of the descendants, something like that. <laughs> yeah, we don't know. Which could be, but for some reason he thinks he has a claim on the box. And Pinhead basically tells me he doesn't. And win- and then he and then he kills him. Which his chains shoot out of the wall, grab Winter, and pull him apart. And that's that's done really well. I mean, this this whole, not the pulling apart. That's the only bit that's slightly strange with the CGI. But it's only brief, so it doesn't really matter. But the whole Winter being grabbed by the chains and pulled taut is is really good. Again, Gary Tunnicliffe doing some amazing work with real practical effects. Yeah, it's really good. It's really good. This bit. It's your standard kind of pinhead turns up and takes someone, you know, rips them to pieces. Mm-hmm. I mean, Winters really doesn't seem to know what the hell's going on here. <laughs> no. Because he's sort of like, you can't hurt me. You can't do this, you can't do that. And pinhead just goes, a lot of people have said that to me. And then <laughs> just mm-hmm. rips him to pieces. But watch this. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, again, those these are the little points. We're not nitpicking here. We're just trying to sort of sort through the points of the story. And some little bits like that, you know... Don't make too much sense, I guess. No, you, and you do need to know what's going on for it to have an impact and you to have a connection with it. And the fact that Winter is, is implying that he wanted Amy to open the box, you still think, but Pinhead would have still turned up and ripped him apart. So what's the point of that? 
But then he's, at one point he implies that he'll have power over him if he has Amy open the box as a deader. Yeah, maybe that's maybe that's what it is. You know. So he thinks if he can turn Amy into a deader and then get her to open the box, having a deader open the box will make the deaders able to go into hell and have power there. I think that's that's what his plan is. I think yeah. that's what I think. That's what I took from it. Yeah, yeah. So he could be he could control her. But unfortunately, then... she. Well, unfortunately for him, she doesn't turn herself into a deader before she opens the box, and so when Pinhead turns up, he has no power. Winter has no power and gets pulled apart. Yeah. And she does the classic opening the box where you just throw it on the floor. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> that box really wants to open, as we know, guys. It yeah. does. <laughs> but then you've got to think, why didn't Pinhead just kill her or take her to hell when she first opened the box? Mm. He just let her go. Yeah. And I think, in my opinion, it's because he wanted to get to Winter because he knew that he was trying to muscle in on his hell and his powers. So he waited till Amy was in the circle of deaders before he could then turn up and get all of the deaders. Mm-hmm. That's what I think. Yeah. I mean, that's a good example, actually, of um, lines in the film that do need to be said and lines that don't. Because it didn't make any sense to me that she opened the box, Pinhead was there, and then he just left. Mm. I thought, what? But like, a, just a line in there saying, like, I'm doing this for my own reasons or whatever yeah. would have made I'd be like, "Ooh, I wonder what he's doing." I'll see you later. Oh, Amy. Yeah, <laughs> whatever you know. Where, but these kind of uh, some of the sequels sort of cut out lines, just quick ones that would make more sense of things, but mm. then really over-explain other things that don't need to be explained at all. Yeah, true. Now on the DVD, there are some deleted and extended scenes, which, which we haven't actually watched yet. But we're going to watch them as soon as we finish this recording, because we wanted to do the recording just on the film, and didn't want to get confused as to what bits are taken out and are in the extended and deleted bits. So some of those might be answered in that. They might be some bits they had to cut out for time reasons. They didn't have to, because... No. So what if it's over an hour and a half? Well, <laughs> just it. cut out some other bits. There's plenty of bits in this film that I could think you could cut out. Yeah. Whereas there's some little lines that if they did film them, keep them in. Mm. But we are going to check those out, and we're going to do another podcast at some point, I think, about um, special features on the DVDs and which ones to get and which ones to avoid. So um, we'll talk about them properly then. But for now, it's still a lot of it is left unclear in this film. Hellraiser Podcast at hotmail.co.uk We have eternity to know your feedback. Beginning with just talking about the end of the film briefly, there's now, after Winter's been pulled apart, all the deaders are killed by, they seem to be very handily for Pinhead, they've lined themselves up into two lines of four people each so he can just shoot two massive chains out of the wall and each chain goes through four people and out the other side of them and they all die which I thought was really disappointing yeah because the bit where you, you see this is the thing is what I was saying about they want to get Pinhead out the way quickly they also look at these bits where you think oh this is the good bit and then they don't do it Mm. Maybe it's money. I don't know. It but could be when... money, just like the uh, in Hellbound when there was supposed to be a massive fight between Chenard and the other Cenobites, and they had yeah. to just do it quickly. I mean, when Pinhead in this scene turns to face the Deaders and sort of goes, mm. "Ah, you know, now we can begin," you know, whatever. You think, "Whoa, what's he going to do?" And then he just dispatches all yeah. of them. I mean, imagine it could have been a, a brilliant like spider's web effect of chains shooting from everywhere and mm. grabbing them all and pulling them up into the air and. Pulling them apart bit by bit. <laughs> Sorry, that's my imagination going. 
Yeah, I might. At the very least, have your other Cenobites walk up yeah. to them and grab hold of them. Exactly, or do that's a perfect like that. you know, moment that doesn't cost for any them money. to do it. Something that's not going to cost any money if the people are already on the set in costume. Yeah, Spike could turn up and hammer them like a woodpecker. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you're right. This is a bit. It is a bit of a weak ending for them, even with Joey's hilarious last line. Oh, for fuck's sake. Which I'm not a big fan of. No, I think it really undermines the scene. Um, yeah, it does. Great CGI with his stomach hole. Mm-hmm. And then it pans up to his face and he's got his hilarious final line. Hilarious in quotes. Mm. And then Pinhead turns to Amy and he says, Ha, huh, now you're mine. And then she says, No, I'm not. And she stabs herself and dies. Yeah. Which, I mean, we've been talking about this. I don't think that that makes any difference. I don't think, if he's been called, if she opened the box and he was summoned, just her stabbing herself and killing herself, I don't think that that stops him taking her to hell. Well, or... you, don't, you don't know, because in the other films, someone opens the box, he turns up, and he does his hooks and chains, and he takes them to mm-hmm. hell. In no other film has someone opened the box, the Cenobites turned up, and then the person killed themselves. I suppose so, but it just seems really weird. It is, it is weird, especially because she's already been chained around the head and things like that, and she's been stabbed and she's been sort of a half-deader and she's half-dead for the whole film. Yeah. I mean, like, because the chains coming out of the box thing, that you could sort of say, because she doesn't have any wounds, that's... their visions, mm. aren't they? They're yeah, they could be, yeah, he could real. be just doing that in her mind. But Pinhead is very much... He needs her to come with him or he needs to do the hooks and chains on her and take her away and she denies that and because of that for some reason because of that all the Cenobites get vanquished back to hell again well the whole building explodes the whole building explodes because she kills herself in a massive ball of blue fire mm. with a very good final pinhead no no <laughs> so yeah so that doesn't really make any sense either no I mean it's great it's fine for the film you watch it and you think Oh, she's gonna de- oh she's denied him and now they're gonna explode and it's only later on you think, hang on, <laughs> why did they explode? Well, I think that's the important thing to say about this film and to say about what we've been saying about it is that we're going through it now. We're looking at all these bits and saying, hmm, this doesn't make any sense. This doesn't make any sense. But crucially, it doesn't make the film any less enjoyable. No, it's a, it's a really enjoyable film. Yeah. So let's say that now. We haven't said that yet. I yeah. think this film is really good. All those people who switched off because they think we hate it. We don't. <laughs> hey, listen, for once, <laughs> we're going to be really nice about the film. We've been a little bit negative for the last three films, even though they've all got good stuff in them. But this one is actually a really good film that I would watch over and over again, I think. I really like it. And I'll tell you one reason why I think this film is so good. and um, That is Kari Wura, who plays Amy Klein. I think that's how you pronounce her name. She is brilliant in this film. She's really, really good. And it doesn't harm it that she's really lovely as well. Mm. And really Mm. sexy. She is. She's very good. Because she's got... I mean, you know, her character's quite feisty. You know, Mm -hmm. she's a bit of a rebel. She goes out there. She gets what she wants. She does the bad stories, the crazy stories. Yeah, she's a bit gothy. Mm. She's supposed. I think she's much more gothy in the original screenplay. She's got wears all black and all black hair, and she's got really pale face. And she's a little bit. 
she's a bit less sort of grungy and dirty than I think um, the original screenplay was trying to say. But that's not that's not a bad thing because she has the ability to charm people as well as should she need to. Hmm. Oh, she's very good. She is excellent. And especially the really intense scenes, like the scene in the bathroom where she's trying to get the knife out and scenes where she's trying to she's being forced to stab herself and she's refusing and also the gr- there's a great moment where she actually gets sucked back into her own flashback of her father her abusive father and you actually discover in this flashback that when she was a child she stabbed him with a massive knife and killed him yeah which gives you an awful lot more all of a sudden into her character mm, absolutely and you can understand, you know, she's obviously this fucked up little girl who then turned out to be a woman who craves knowledge about fucked up things. Yeah, she's definitely on the darker side of life. And uh... Yeah, well, Joey describes her as having this whole self-destructive fucked up thing going on. Hmm. So she's a really interesting character and she's played incredibly well by Kari Wura. I think that's how you pronounce her name. Apologies <laughs> if it's not. Kari, if you're listening... I'm really sorry if I pronounced your surname wrong, but we think you're brilliant. And do get in touch. (laughs) (laughs) So one thing we haven't mentioned is the very, very end of the film, um, where Charles, the editor of the newspaper, is trying to coax another reporter, another pretty young lady, into going after the story. Yeah, it's almost like the same motif with the box, you know, Mm -hmm. the things repeating over and over again. She comes into the room and... He obviously likes the look of her, and mm. he's like, I've got a great story for you. Come look at this videotape. It almost implies that this tale will play out again and again. Yeah. And some people think that this implies that he is actually involved in the Cenobites and hell and that whole storyline. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is something that you can find online. Lots of people have that theory. I personally don't think that's the case. I think he's just literally trying to find the story. He doesn't seem terribly upset the fact that Amy's disappeared but he's obviously it's affecting him and he is but he is willing to send someone else out to try and find out what happened out there well he's I mean he's he's quite well played as well I like him I like yeah. his character um, but he's um, he describes himself as like a user doesn't he at some point in the film he says mm. I, I use people until they're not useful or something like that and um, he uses them to get lots of information so that he can then have it yeah, so, you know, I think... And his relationship with her, they show a photograph of them together from obviously from a long time ago, and they've obviously known each other from a long time, but he still it seems quite like he's just using her to do what he wants, basically. Yeah. So I can sort of understand that he's sort of not that bothered about... This, the story comes first, I suppose, that's the thing. Well, also, it? he doesn't find out that she's dead or anything. He just... No, he thinks she's, she's just missing. Just, he thinks she's just maybe run off or yeah, something. Yeah, so she, I mean, she's a bit crazy. We don't she? know that she hasn't done this before. She might have just disappeared before for a, a few months and then turned up. Yeah. So maybe that's why he's not terribly worried about her. But he's going to send someone else off to do the same sort of thing, implying that he he might have the knowledge that this new girl might disappear as well, which is a bit shifty. Yeah, well, he comes across as a bit of a shifty character, you know. Yeah, he is. He's a bit of a rogue, isn't he? Yeah. Right, so that's the film done in terms of plot. Just to go back and elaborate on something that we said earlier on, which is the look of the film. The film looks 
great, I think. It's done in a really cinematic way. Not at all like some of the earlier entries into the series where it looks a bit like a TV movie or it looks cheap. Um, I think you mentioned there's maybe one or two scenes that are lit a little bit like a TV movie. Yeah, I think there's just a, just just slightly just a couple of scenes where it looks a little bit... Every mm. now and again, yeah, when it's in a small set and it's lit in a very specific way. But then all of a sudden they, they're outside on the streets of Bucharest and it just immediately looks like a like a film. It's great. Yeah, it's really good. And we know, obviously, having done a little bit of research into it, that they were really under pressure for time... And yeah, they hardly had any time to make the film at all. Language barriers and all sorts of things, and no money. And for those reasons, we've got to give much respect to them all. It's great. Yeah, it's, and especially to the director, Rick Bota, who, like we said, made Hellseeker, which, as we mentioned in the last podcast, does have flaws as a film. And it's amazing that the guy who made this made that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's more amazing that... He also made the next film, Hellworld, which is not quite as good as this one. But yeah. we will talk about that next time. We're we'll, not going to start that now. Let's not talk about that now. No. But no, it is It is well... This film is really well done. It's well made. It's well directed. It looks great. I think that this one's been really well received by the fans as well, this one. Yeah, it seems people to be. Seen it, so. I mean, we've got a few... We had a few emails and things from people saying, I hope you're not too hard on Deader. <laughs> <laughs> and as it happens, we like it as well. So, hey, we're with you guys. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. Having seen, you know, the sequels up until this point, mm. it, it feels nice to get to this film and, and just really enjoy it and feel yeah. just feel really comfortable that it's just a well-made film. Yes, there's plot holes and there's bits and bobs and little bits to nitpick at, which is what the point of this podcast is, is to, yeah. to, to go through these things and just kind of question them. But that doesn't mean that we don't like it. And well done to everyone who made it. <laughs> yes, well done. Including, in the credits, it says uh, Stan Winston was a yeah. producer. Stan Winston, of course, is a major special effects guy who did things like Terminator and Aliens and Predator, I think. Did he do Predator? Yes, he? he did. Yeah, he's done some amazing stuff. And just the idea of him being involved in this Hellraiser film is enough to get you excited from the opening credits I think mm, I'd love to know what his real involvement was and, and how he was involved and why And yeah they don't go into him much on the commentaries and the making ofs I mean maybe he's he was just his production company lending a hand or mm. something like that but I, I don't he certainly I don't think he was on set or anything no, <laughs> he, no, no he wasn't helping out but he certainly had some kind of input whether it was just money or whether it was his company helping out or but um, he did some amazing stuff and it's great that he did all these really famous award-winning films and then he worked on Hellraiser Deader. I know, I can't believe it. I've got this huge book of his work, of, all, of everything he's mm-hmm. done. And, and are, there no, are there hooks and chains in it? No, no hooks and chains. I was, oh, I was shocked. To criminal. See his, you know, I would have respected him even more if I'd known he'd be involved in a Hellraiser film. Mm. Well, if there's a Hellraiser sequel to be involved in, this is the one, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think that about wraps up this podcast. So thanks again for listening. Our next podcast is going to be our final podcast about the series of films. That's not quite true, because there's going to be a new one coming out very soon. Yeah. Which we're going to have to watch and talk about, even though we've seen the trailer and we're not terribly impressed. Go online and and watch the trailer for, for the Hell, new... Hellraiser Revelations. 
just and please just, do that listeners. and just get a bit sad <laughs> because I challenge anyone to watch that trailer and and feel anything but utter horror and not in a good way yeah and we'll get there though we'll do that in a few podcast time when it comes out as soon as it comes out we're gonna watch it and do a podcast about it so you won't have to <laughs> you never know it might surprise us it might it be really might, good you're right it might i'm gonna i'm gonna be cautiously optimistic okay <laughs> i'm not but uh hope for the best let's try it but no our next podcast is about hellraiser hell world which is the eighth film and it stars lance henriksen yeah yeah you I might like know him. from aliens and alien three and Near Dark and lots of other brilliant things. And many straight-to-DVD films since. Yes. Yeah. So that's a reason to watch Hellworld. So go out and watch that. That's your homework between now and next next time. So in the meantime, thanks for listening. Do check out our Facebook page. And we've got a Twitter feed, at HellraiserCast. And if you've got any feedback at all, do send it in to HellraiserPodcast at Hotmail.co.uk. Yep. So thanks very much for listening, and that's all for now. Yeah, we'll see you next time. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, Peter. And thank you for listening. Cheers. See you soon. Bye. Bye.